Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 33. It is good to be with you today. Gotten a few new ratings and uh, new reviews uh, on Apple Podcasts, and just want to say thank you for that. And um, also just welcome to first-time listeners. Uh, I know that uh, each episode, sometimes we get a few new listeners that come on board to check out a a certain guest, and uh, certainly hope you'll check out some of the other episodes. And uh, just to remind you, uh, this is not like a chronological series. Each guest is unique. You can listen in any order that you want. I mean, when it comes to podcasts, you have about a half a million choices out there. And uh, I'm just thankful that we are one of your choices and that you're taking the time to hear all of these great musicians, uh, stories of people in the pit, and sometimes occasionally outside the pit, we have some music and arts-related stories that that are at least uh, parallel. Also, it's been a while since I've brought this up, but I'm always looking for ideas for guests. I've got several people recorded that I haven't released yet. I've got other people I have not recorded, um, but you know it's not an endless list. I'll I'll have to go seek out some more people to bring on the show, and it's always nice if those of you who listen to the show, if you have stories of your time in the pit, or if you have friends that uh, would love to talk to me. I'm looking for all types. Um, I, I tend to get a lot of people contact me who are music directors, and that's great. I'd love to have some non-music directors, though. I'd love to have people who play brass instruments, strings, woodwinds. Um, Maybe you are someone who works at a theater and works with the pit with microphones. You know, it's just there's a lot of angles, a lot of things I'm willing to explore. Um, I'm not really close-minded on exploring anything as long as it has to do with theater music and... uh, especially if it has something to do with the pit itself and musicians in the pit. And if you're listening and that applies to you, but you're thinking, well, that all sounds great, um, but I'm not on Broadway, I'm not on a national tour, I just uh, I just work for community theaters or schools in uh, you know whatever medium small town that you live in. And that's okay, I want to hear from you too. I'd, I'd like to cover... Uh, a g- great goal of mine would be to cover all of the regions of this country. Um, I've already talked to someone in Australia. I would love to talk to people in Europe. Um, I want to talk about theater all over the world and uh, and in all types, whether whether it's for elementary schools or whether it is for Tony Award-winning Broadway shows. Let's cover all of it. Today, we're talking about South Florida theater. I'm going to be talking today with Eric Eeks. He is a violist. We haven't had a lot of string players on the podcast. Um, He also plays violin, but viola is his main instrument, and we're going to talk about that. He's a doctoral student uh, at the University of Miami, and he's gotten to know a little bit of the theater scene down there, Uh, but he's also got some experience working with musicians from kind of the other side of the curtain uh, by being a personnel manager. Uh, for the Henry Mancini Institute, which is associated with uh, the University of Miami. 
and uh, he's going to be talking to us about that and uh, quite a bit more in just a second. So uh, let's get right to it. This is my interview with Eric Eeks. So, Eric, thank you for taking time out as this close to Christmas to be on my show today. Absolutely. It's so great to be here. I've been listening to Life in the Pit, and it's it's really great to hear all the different perspectives. Yeah. Um, so we we had one experience together in the pit, and that was in uh, for Oklahoma back in 2015. And I feel like that show comes up a lot. There's a lot of people I worked with, I think, for the only instance in that pit. And we had, I think, we had 13 players. It was it was a really good show, great cast, uh, and a very good orchestra. And uh, and I kind of associated you with one of the other guests, which was Dina Riscala, because uh, I remember. Um, I was looking for a second violinist or, or a first violinist. My wife wanted to play second. And um, when I hired her, she, she said, if you need a violist, Eric Eeks. <laughs> and so I just yeah. went ahead and uh, asked you and, and got you, I think, on the same day. So so I've always kind of considered you all kind of a, a package deal <laughs> when it came <laughs> to the pit. So um, so you, you all went to school together, right? We did, yes. Um, I was really sad when she moved to Nashville, but yeah. things are going really well for her, so right. that's great. Well, of course, of course she yeah. wasn't the only one that moved. You've moved as well, right? That's true, yeah. <laughs> I, I moved to Miami in 2015, wow. but I, I grew up in Greensboro, and yeah, I met Dina while I was at UNCG. I think um, I think she came in the year after me, but yeah. Right. She's okay. such a great violinist. Yes, Yes. We're, we're kind of back in time. We're talking uh, in the last basically 10 days or so of 2020. And uh, you'll be one of the first few episodes in 2021. So <laughs> ho- okay. ho- hopefully this will, will this will be coming out on what will be a more optimistic year. <laughs> yeah, let's let's keep our fingers crossed. This one's been an interesting one for sure. Right. Um, so again, the one time that I've worked with you, uh, I've known you as a violist, and I certainly want to talk about it. But if you could just describe what is it? You, so you're in Miami. What is it that you do there now? So I am currently completing a doctorate at the University of Miami. Um, I, I I moved to Miami in 2015 and obtained a master's there first. And what I do is, while I'm writing my dissertation, because I'm in my last year, I work as the personnel manager for the Henry Mancini Institute Orchestra, which is a crossover orchestra in residence at the University of Miami. So through, it it kind of, it's not a super like glamorous process of how I got into the job. Like um, at the conclusion of my master's, the teaching assistantship opened up and it was given to me and they said, hey, you know, you're, you're an organized person. Like we think that you would be a really great fit for the personnel manager job. And what I, what I found out was I really love doing this. And I've actually started contracting in the area. I've run a couple different recording sessions, um, booked a few orchestras, you know, lots of solo and quartet gigs and things. But nice. yeah, it's, it's been fun. Nice. So what, what in detail, what does a personnel manager do? So with the Henry Mancini Institute, it's kind of interesting. Like, um, as far as my, my, the number of hats that I, I wear, 
We have a roster of about 75 to 80 musicians, depending on the academic year. Right. So I will do like part assignments, seating rotations. I will make stage plots, which in COVID times is an interesting process to make sure that social distancing happens. But I'm also the point of contact between the school's administration and the musician pool. So if anyone has a question on either side, they come to me first. And I handle all the substitute musician hiring. Uh, when we work with other venues, if we're on tour or something, I do all the backline requirements and I communicate with the venues. And I like to say that I have like a one of my last hats that I wear is I, I work in the cat- catastrophe mitigation mm-hmm. section. Nice. But <laughs> yeah, I just I try to prevent any fires before they happen. Nice. So definitely want to talk a little bit more about, you know, what you're doing currently, but let's uh, let's go back in the past now. So um so how did you get into music? Was was viola your first? I assume viola wasn't your first. It rare, rarely is. Yeah, so my story it's kind of it's it's funny cuz it's come full circle in a way. Right. I started when I was 5. And my interest in music began when my parents took me to a North Carolina symphony concert. Mm-hmm. And they, it was a Pops concert. You know, they were playing, I think it was Mars and Jupiter. They had the Star Wars suite that everybody plays. Then they had the E.T. suite. And it was with E.T. that I saw a kid. He was probably my age, maybe a little older, you know. But he walked out. He was wearing an E.T. costume. <laughs> and he was soloing with the orchestra. And my five-year-old brain was like, this is what I want to do, you know? <laughs> uh, the E.T. The e. part or in the orchestra? <laughs> well, that's that's been the big question because it's like, well, wait a minute. I'm not a violinist, really. Right. Am I just, like, looking for the E.T. costume in my closet now? Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> I still have time. Right. So what was your first instrument? when? Um... It was violin. Oh, okay. Yeah. And when did you, and when did you pick up viola? So I... I played violin for about 10 years, mm-hmm. and I still do sometimes. Right. Um, but most of my work is either on the viola or doing some sort of like either personnel managing or working as a session engineer or something like that. Because um, what I found was I just really don't like doing finger replacements. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm a kind of tall guy, so, you know, viola is, it fits me better. Right. Yeah. So how was the transition to alto clef? <laughs> um, you know, it's it's kind of interesting. Um, one of my first concerts on the viola was, it was with a regional, I guess it's a regional all-state orchestra in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I, I auditioned for both violin and viola. So my first piece that I played in an orchestra on viola was uh, Romeo and Juliet, the Tchaikovsky one. Right. And that was a struggle. Mm-hmm. Because I learned reading alto clef is not as easy as people try to act right. like it. You know? Right. <laughs> but I mean, now, of course, it's second nature. Right. But at that point in time, I was like, whoa, okay. Right. I imagine we've got some listeners uh, who are not musicians at all, but are just interested in the subject. So just a little background. If you've ever played piano before, you know of treble clef and bass clef. And uh, those are not the only two clefs in music. It's actually, if you want to get into the historical sense, there's probably a dozen or more clefs out there. Uh, but in terms of like the modern era, there are four clefs. There's the uh, the treble and the bass clef, which you have in piano, um, which is in 
most of the orchest orchestral instruments <laughs> that there are, I, I'd say I, I figured out a while back that more instruments are in treble clef than anything, because as a composer, you start writing out what people read. And it's like uh, in the woodwinds, everybody but bassoon reads treble clef. Even all the clarinets, all the saxophones, doesn't even, doesn't even matter how low they go. <laughs> they all read treble clef. <laughs> Your guitar reads treble clef. Your um, brass instruments, everybody but the... It's actually pretty balanced. The trombone, the tuba, and the euphonium reads bass clef. Everyone else reads treble. Um, strings, except for viola, are kind of how you would expect. You got the violins and treble clef, the cello and the bass and bass clef. And then there's the viola all by itself with an alto clef. <laughs> so um, I would just encourage you to just do a Google image search on alto clefs to see what it looks like. I always thought it looked like a K, <laughs> where where the uh, the um, where the the middle point, the middle line, points to middle C, and it and it fits right on the third line of the staff. Middle C is on the middle line, which is, you know, I think it's pretty pretty handy. In fact, I actually like it when I um, when I was studying scores as a composition student. Um, one of my big heroes is Samuel Barber, and Barber. In his uh, scores, he he doesn't do a transposed score; he does a C score, and he writes out the French horns in alto clef, which makes a uh, lot of sense when you think about their range, you know. Yeah, yeah. It and does. they tend to play with the violas, and uh, I so I started doing that with French horns. I started doing that with alto saxophone, and then you know you do a little uh, a little prep work in finale or Sibelius and. Uh, and, and then when you transpose it as, into parts, it pops out as treble clef or whatever is necessary for, for them to read it so they don't have to read alto clef. But I actually, I actually enjoy it. Uh, and then, and then um, tenor clef, of course, is, uh, looks like alto clef, except it points to the fourth line. And nobody uses it exclusively, but it's uh, an upper register help for cellos, bassoons, and trombones. <laughs> Yeah, it's like the Swiss Army clef, you know. <laughs> right. And then violas, if it gets too high for alto clef, they do switch to treble clef. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So still no need for bass clef, though. <laughs> though, though it's interesting, especially with church gigs, how frequently I get parts in bass clef just right. because they're, you know, going from four part. So Yeah, well, I, d I never thought about that before. Um, you know, if you take a hymnal, the the viola would get the tenor part. And mm -hmm. so that's usually in the bass clef. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> nice. My bass clef reading has gotten a whole lot better, you know? Right. It's just So yeah. how did you get into theater? What was your first show for the pit? How old were you? So my first show and it was more opera, like it's with the pit it was I think it was my either first or second year at UNCG actually. And it's kind of, it's interesting because it was a workshopped, uh, it was a world premiere, it was a Libby Larson opera, and it was mm. called Picnic. Oh, okay. And that was my first exposure to being in a pit at all. Mm -hmm. And what was fascinating, I had just bought this 18-inch viola. Right. And I know there's like, a, there's a viola joke in there somewhere. <laughs> right. But I learned that in the pit, you tend to be cramped for space. Yes. 
<laughs> and I found, so I had to my left, there was this structural pole because the stage had been extended so that the folks could walk above us. Mm. And in front of me, I had my stand. And of course, I had my stand partner. And I kept whacking everything with the scroll of this viola, <laughs> trying to get away from all the obstacles. Right. And it was kind of that experience sort of. It taught me when I'm making stage plots and things to really think about the sizes of the instruments instead of just like how big a chair is. Right. Because that seems to be something that happens to a lot of people where they're they're making the plot and they're just like, okay, I have to fit this number of chairs in this space. Right. Oh, I did it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and you're like, but wait a minute. You have yes. to fit a base over there. How are you right. going to do that? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I When I first got into shows and, and experienced just how difficult it is to <laughs> use the space that's been granted and make everybody oh, yeah. fit. Uh, I had a guitarist friend say that he was convinced that they they get, f like, if you need five musicians, they get five guys on a platform and just stand there and go, hey, yeah, we have room. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got to have a chance. Uh, you have to have a, sorry, you have to have a stand. You have to have a chair. You have, uh, sometimes I've done, like, five or six musicians and all but the drummer had an amp and the drummer had a drum set you know it's like and and it's funny I, inevitably you have to fit into a rectangle and and drums a drum set is basically round right <laughs> you know, yeah. the configuration is round <laughs> and so um it's like a lot of times fitting musicians into a pit is is a, is a jigsaw puzzle and um and uh, it's it's one that I tend to lose my, if I'm going to lose my cool, <laughs> I lose my cool trying to fit the musicians into the pit. That's why I've tried to hire at least one or two musicians who can say, okay, it's okay. We got this. We'll figure this out. <laughs> oh, yeah. There has to be a Tetris player in there. Right. Just to make it, got to make it work. Yep. I know Ron Ford has some stories about negotiating space. Right. He's always so creative. Right. Um. <laughs> Yeah, it's and, and so if you're multi-read players, like you, sometimes you got to figure. Well, maybe one one of these instruments can stay in my lap the whole time. And <laughs> right, um, yeah, I have as a keyboardist, I have stood up because there was no room to sit on anything. Uh, I've sat on my amp, and um, there's probably been a lot of other <laughs> weird weird <laughs> scenarios in there that may come up later. Um, so, uh, so you, once you took the viola, that kind of just you kind of fell into that. That's been your main thing. Um, just related to theater, has that limited your opportunities or have you found plenty of shows to play for? So it's been interesting. Like most of my shows recently have been like the live film to concert kind of shows mm -hmm. where I'm not so much in the pit, but everything is blacked out and it feels like I'm in a pit. Right. Now, I know, like, in the early 2000s, most of, of the theater scores are using reduced sections, at least the ones that I've seen come through Miami. Right. Where they're not even hiring violas. So hmm. that that one feels kind of, you know, I feel a little pained. It's like, I know, I know. You right. don't want to use alto clef. I know. Right. But I actually, I had a, an experience up in, it was up in New York. There was a festival called Mostly Modern. Mm-hmm. And the American Modern Ensemble is up there. And what's really cool about it, and I, I didn't know it at the time until I was like right there and kind of playing with everyone, was that most of those folks are all Broadway players. Mm -hmm. 
And that kind of brought to the forefront, because they don't really talk about this in school, you know, you're kind of, you can take secondary lessons as, as a string player, but it's definitely like more woodwinds where they're talking about doubling and tripling and making sure that you can play the read books. But making sure that you can play violin and viola is so important. Right. So, like, I have my violin with me. I have right. a double case. Right. I gently encourage folks, hey, don't make me play up there because I don't want to do the finger replacements. But I can do it, you know, if right. I have to. Have you ever, yeah. had, ever had a chance to play a five-string violin? I have, yeah. and I prefer five-string violas. Right. But, you know, it's interesting. I also, at one of the last ASTA conferences, I played a five-string that had octave strings on it. So right. it was like an octave five-string that sounded like a cello. Right. That was pretty nifty. Like, play the six Bach cello suite and... Sounded pretty good, right? <laughs> uh, my my wife used that. I want to say it's when we did Fun Home because I think that was the violin viola book, mm-hmm. and uh, and and she she tried a five string for that, and I can't remember if she finished with the five string or not, or just started going <laughs> to violin viola. the The one thing is is um, at least in our experiences, you do for the convenience of having all the strings you need on a violin and a viola and one instrument, you do lose tone quality, you know? So, oh, yeah. so it's, it's, it's a nice thing. I guess if you were playing kind of pop music in a band or something, you wanted just that extra, you know, to be able to get down a little lower than a, than a violin, but still have the upper range of a violin, especially something you're going to amp. It's probably pretty good, but yeah, you do lose a little bit, you know, on the tone. Yeah. So. I've I have heard of some violas where they put an F string on. Like I think um I always butcher his name. It's Tomas Riebel. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uses an F string to play Schubert Arpeggion. Okay. And it sounds great. I mean, granted he commissioned that instrument and it's like it's a big instrument. He's a tall guy, he can do it. Mm-hmm. And I guess he gets the string custom made and everything, but Right. Yeah. I haven't heard very many five string violas that sound amazing that's for sure right not to mention the mechanics are different because the strings are close you know it's like what is this fifth string doing here right <laughs> playing all these double stops right uh but. you know the w- first time i i played um got to play a, a bosender for piano uh it was in uh and and i feel you know i feel like uh better check i may i may have told this story before <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, listeners pardon me if i mentioned this before but um, it was residing in uh, the concert hall at my college, and I was one year removed from graduating. I was just visiting, and uh, I was told that they had one in in the uh, concert hall that was basically just the university was caretaking it, you know, for somebody for the, for the year. I think maybe while they were out of the country or whatever. So, um, and it's one of those you open up a door. And there's extra keys, you know. So it, instead of going down to the low A, it goes down all the way to the C below that. And uh, I just decided to play, I guess, my what was my favorite piece at the time, still one of them, which was the Brahms Rhapsody in G minor. And the left hand has to make, like, three quick octave jumps, and the last one lands on the two lowest A's on the piano. 
And it's the easiest thing to land on that note on the piano because you basically just go to the end of the line <laughs> with your pinky, your right. left pinky, and just drop it. But the first time I tried that in a Bosendurfer and I saw those extra keys, I was like, whoa, <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> There's it's a like, whole other land over there. It's like, I guess I did need this visual element because um, it, it no longer felt right over there. So, yes, I imagine the five string is kind of the same uh, deal. Um, back to what you said about a double case, though. Uh, I know one of the stories that, um, you know, talking about Ron Ford, mm-hmm. um his his horror story involved an exploding violin, and um, my wife was able to hand over her violin during the show because she was playing viola, but she had her double case. That's so she perfect. had the violin. So you never know when you might be able to bail out <laughs> another player if you have a spare instrument with you. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. Spare instrument, spare strings, just like ready to go. Spare bow. I've seen it where... The the screw strips and the bow is just like unplayable and you're like, uh oh. Right. You know? <laughs> um, so you've been in Miami for five years. Uh, have you gotten an idea of what what is what is the theater scene like down there for uh, someone who's a pit musician? You know, um there's a pretty heavy opera scene that I've seen with the Florida Grand Opera. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen a huge theater scene, but granted, I don't get out that much. They right. work me pretty hard at the school. Right. But, yeah, let's see. We have the Miami City Ballet also. They're, they're, both of those are working out of the Arsh Center. Right. Um, theaters, there are some. I've, I have played a couple of like high school music theater productions right and those have been fun typically though they're they're just calling in like single ringers and the high schoolers are on stage right um so so you know having having the greensboro area to compare would, would you say that's probably not as many opportunities for players down there or just different opportunities I think it's just different opportunities. Like, I mean, right. the Super Bowl came through. Folks were playing for that. My girlfriend was actually on that show. Okay. Um, I was on it, but then they decided they only wanted females. So oh. I was like, okay. Okay. You know, <laughs> I guess I'm a little too tall for this one. Right. <laughs> but um, Might have to shave. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, um, and then uh, there's a, what is it? There's a big EDM one. I was on that too, but COVID canceled it. Right. Um, Ultra Music Festival. Yeah, that was coming through. Right. But predominantly what I see or what I've seen recently, I mean, besides like we have Naples Phil over on the other coast, I sub with them sometimes. Um, We have maybe five different per service orchestras in the area. And then the full time things, Miami City Ballet is full time. Florida Grand Opera is full time. yeah. Right. I haven't like the the movie with film stuff that's right. kind of being produced primarily at the Arch Center that's handled by one contractor, so there's not like a full-time orchestra that's doing that. A lot of my stuff I've done with Naples or through the Henry Mancini Institute. Like we did uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark a couple of years ago and right. that was up in Boca Raton and that was super fun just because it was an, it was an outdoor venue and kind of getting to see how the cue system was going to work outside and making sure that the projector was working and just the audience reaction. Like I remember 
what is that scene where he's like being lowered into the snake pit? Oh yeah. Yeah. And everyone's just like, oh, right. you know, and I think that's the most newly part in the viola part too. It's just like this snake pit section. But right. That was a fun show. So do I understand correctly? You, you, you get to Naples every now and then? I do. Yes. So do you, you prefer the alligator alley or the Tamiami trail? <laughs> I, I have taken both. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just it kind of depends on how much traffic I've been in in Miami, like if I want right. to be really direct or not. I, I would imagine at night the Tamiami Trail would be kind of scary. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's that's more of a morning or during the day. kind of. Yeah. I've only been to that part of Florida once. I'm I'm a, I'm a native Floridian, but, you know, I'm a, from the panhandle. So it's like a completely different state. But um, oh, yeah, <laughs> but we did. Uh, my wife and I did go to from Tampa to Key West one time and we stayed in Naples and uh we went across uh and we we went from Naples to Key West which on the map looked like an okay plan but we were just worn out by the time we got to Key West it just it, oh, yeah. it, it the the map is deceptive how long it takes to get from Miami to Key West and it's just you can't go over 40 i mean the speed limit is 40 and and you really can't go it's two lanes you know <laughs> yeah yeah a lot of bridges and so forth but uh then we came from there we did stay at south beach for a night which was which was kind of interesting you know i'd at the only time the only time i actually stopped in downtown miami was to pull over to check the map the my map direction so this will date this will date when it was it's like it didn't have google maps didn't have a smartphone but it was in the era of internet where you could print out the directions in advance. Like oh, map yeah, map quests. Quest. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so it's like, I just want to make sure we're still in the right place because it's like it was the interstate had not ended at the point I thought it was. And I had to get to the causeway, uh, goes over Biscayne Bay or whatever. And it's like, I just don't know where I am. So basically, it was an exit off the interstate pulled over on the shoulder of some downtown street. <laughs> That's the, oh, yeah. only, the only thing I had in actual Miami proper. But um, yeah, it's one of those, I, I'd love to try it out again, uh, it, mainly because I love Cuban food and you can't can't beat Cuban food down there. So <laughs> Yeah, I love it here. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, it's kind of interesting because uh, I feel like, I've talked just about all the major cities in Florida now, so uh, episode you've not heard yet, that, but um, will be the next interview I release, was somebody in the Orlando area who also okay, yeah. who also has covered Tampa. And, of course, I've talked to somebody who, who professionally works out of Jacksonville and mm-hmm. then um, now kind of getting an idea of Miami. Actually, uh, the, last, the last episode um, that I released that you could have heard was... Um, with Taiki Azuma, he's, yeah, 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 he's from Miami. So, <laughs> yeah, so, he went to UM for his undergrad, I think. Right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he and he was actually born down there, so he stayed down there through undergrad and then uh, came up here. So, kind of reverse journey of yours. So. Yeah, yeah. Now, are you are you from North Carolina originally? Yeah, no? I am actually. I'm from Greensboro. Okay, so okay. grew up there. So it was a big transition moving to Miami. Like, this is the biggest city I've ever lived in. Oh, yeah. And, like, the traffic, I used to think that North Carolina traffic, like, around Raleigh or something, like, that was that was really heavy, you know? And I was like, oh, no. Right. This is... Because people drive crazy, too, where they're, like, doing U-turns on 95 or something. I don't know what they do, but it gets crazy. Oh, I don't even... I don't even think I could really fathom... When, when I moved away from Florida, it was... 
crowd. I think Florida was the fourth most populated state, and okay. and I know now it's 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 easily the third, and I think the population has doubled since I lived there. You know, so it's just, and and of course, as you probably imagine, the 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 further south you go, the more growth there is. It's actually I think oh yeah, Dade Broward. Pinellas, maybe Hillsborough, but definitely those three counties are like a good chunk of where the growth is, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I was meaning to ask, do you by chance live near the airport? Um, I don't. I I live downtown. Oh, and okay. what's interesting is I am in a direct flight path. Oh, okay. Because I heard I heard an airplane a few times. I didn't know if you were. <laughs> yeah. I've been working on soundproofing my area. Like I bought these, um, Insulated curtains. Yeah, uh, they're called like by Audimute or something. Like right, because I what I really want to do is buy the DHDI uh, ZR screens, but those are like seven thousand dollars a pop, so wow. not gonna happen anytime soon. Right, but yeah, it's it makes it interesting for recording sometimes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, so it's, it's not. Oh no, it's not. It, I can hear it in the background. You know, it's fine. So. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So. Just with what you've been doing, you know, as a personnel manager, um, assume that allows you to interact with other musicians. And uh, oh, just yeah. what what is it like being on the other side of the curtain? And just how's your experience as a musician kind of given you some type of, I guess, sympathy for what they're what they're having to do? Well, it's it's been remarkable just because of all of the legwork that happens before musicians are even a part of the event. Mm hmm. And I mean, it's there's so much more work there, right? That it just happens behind the scenes, and a lot of folks when they show up and like the parts on the stand, they they play, and that's what the audience gets to see too is that amount of work. But all of the stuff behind the scenes that makes it happen, most folks don't even notice it. Like, right? I remember we were, I think it was the Arsh Center, and we had a it was the because the HMI configuration is full orchestra and then big band, and we do a lot of different, a lot of different shows. Like we're a part of the Jazz Roots um, series at the Arch Center, and I think it was one of those where we had a guitar soloist, and he he had walked out on stage. Mm -hmm. It was during the concert, and. I was watching this guy because I was sitting in the viola section. I was watching this guy behind the, he was a stagehand behind the curtain. And he was, he was very, very pale, very stressed. Mm. And it had turned out they couldn't find his guitar backstage. Mm. Wow. He had left it in his dressing room. So, mm. you know, you get to watch, you're, you're on stage watching them kind of scurry going, okay, well, he's telling jokes on stage. The audience doesn't know, mm -hmm. you know, and then the, the guitar appears and the state like everything goes on wow. like normal and it's just like there are so many times when that kind of stuff is happening in that time leading up to when the musicians are engaged right and just folks don't notice right but it's also it's so rewarding to be behind the scenes and working on something for a few months or a few weeks and finally get to see it start i know you get to see this probably more than I do. But. Right. Well, you know, what you just described, uh, so for the actors, uh, friends that I have that are listening, 
This is the musical version of when it's when actors are told you should you should be on the crew at some point so that you'll understand what's going on behind the stage and above the stage and below the stage, you know, while you're on stage. And uh, and when you do that, you know, probably more than once, but even once you get a little bit of empathy for the other side. And that's very helpful because. You know, I know if 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 I have a you know if you're a musician, and you know somebody is backstage helping you, it's helpful if that musician is sympathetic, you know, oh, yeah. uh, and not taking your job for granted and and so forth. And also, uh, you know, as a musician, uh, as a performing musician, you know what they're going through. And just, I think it just having experience on both sides of the curtain, I think, just really helps that be a better scenario altogether. Absolutely. Um, well, whether it's with the pit or um, whether it's as a personnel manager, is there a, is there a horror story you'd like to share? Well, one of those was actually that guitar oh. that I talked about earlier. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, that was that was an interesting one. I've I've been there, like I've witnessed some like almost catastrophes, like where I was talking about some like catastrophe mitigation. Right. It's where things could have gone terribly wrong in some alt universe but right. they did like when you're when you're watching and you know the the artist is talking and the teleprompter is scrolling and then the teleprompter starts like scrolling upward and it goes to the wrong section of the show and you're like oh no right but the artist is fine you know especially like we we had one where it was a very young kid mm-hmm. and luckily he didn't have much to do with the teleprompter, but mm. the younger they get, the less they're they're able to kind of work without the teleprompter. You right. Know? Right. So, yeah. Uh, and I did. I had one other one, and this one's kind of nobody got hurt, but it's kind of <laughs> funny because you know you're you're just playing in the pit and. You're at you're about to get to intermission and you hear this just awful sound coming from the cellos, you know, and that's mm-hmm. not normal. Right. Well, it turned out a bridge had fallen and somehow the bridge fell in such a way that it got caught in the strings and slingshotted and hit me in the leg. Wow. But it wasn't like hard enough to make me think that it was anything. So then at intermission I look down and there's this cello bridge like sitting next to my foot and I'm going, Oh, that's what that was. Nice. <laughs> at, at first, I was I was imagining stagecraft. I was like like a bridge on the stage. <laughs> oh no, no, like, no. that Just would a be cello bridge. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, uh, that even a cello bridge, I could imagine that would be something. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, they did not have a cello that was sitting right. in an extra case. But well, you know, um, what's a fond moment that you've had from playing for theater? You know, I was thinking, and the Oklahoma mm-hmm. that I was working with you, that right. was so fun. Mm-hmm. And that was my first time using technology. Right. Like, with music. Like, I was I was using the iPad, I was using the foot pedal, and with Fourscore, because we had made a couple of different repeats and things, and the ability to just edit the part right there right. blew my mind. And, of course, you know, I was, I was working with Ron because he was right next to me. Right. And he was kind of like teaching me how to do it, and that was that was awesome. Right. But I really, I, 
that's one of the things that I miss most about being up in North Carolina mm-hmm. is just working with you guys and yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's uh, the musicians around here are, you know, it's is it as it was mentioned before, it's like a bit of a family, uh, but it's a pretty Absolutely. large family. I mean. Um, and some people do move away. It's like, uh, there, for the longest time, I was always having to find a new guitarist because I kept hiring uh, guys in college, you know, that that would go on, you know, to do something else. Right. And uh, and it wasn't really till about 2015 that I that I found a a go to guy, you know, and then a little later that I found a few backups. But um, yeah, there's there are just a lot of great musicians up here and thankfully you know a pretty rich theater scene you know so that's a nice thing uh, but you played that uh, we did that in high point theater which is one of the very few places in this area for all the theater scenes it's one of the very few places that has a bona fide pit <laughs> yeah i remember having like i had definitely enough space for me right and i wasn't like I didn't have anything hitting me in the leg. Mm, yeah. No parts of instruments. There wasn't an amp like under my right. foot. Right. Yeah. Now that might not have been the case if we'd gotten the full book because I think it was a I think it's a nineteen piece book. We had thirteen pieces. But, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was trying to think. I feel like I did Beauty and the Beast. I don't remember if it was twelve or fourteen. I know that we used two keyboards, which was uh, you know one of the things for that. But that was two years later. And uh, yeah. it felt a little tighter in in the pit, you know. So, so I'm starting to think maybe it, maybe it was 14. I'm not too sure, <laughs> but it's just the right size for that type of show. So <laughs> yeah, I know 2020 is different for a lot of people. Have you had any special projects going on this year? Well, um, does my dissertation count? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> what's your dis? Uh, are you able to say what's your dissertation? Uh, well, it'll be revealed in May of 2021. Okay. But it's on a lot of intonation. Okay. So All right. it, it should be interesting. I don't want to, I don't want to bore all the, all the folks. Okay. <laughs> you know. All right. I'm also, and... I'm working on rebuilding my website. Okay. So my website is ericeeks.com, E-A-K-E-S. And I've been soundproofing my spare bedroom because... You know, like right. you were pointing out, nobody really ever asks for more airplane or car horn in their recording. <laughs> right. And I guess unless you're doing a, that's a George Antheil piece called Ballet Mechanique, you know, <laughs> uses an airplane engine. So <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> yeah. But you have to time your recording just right, though, because it's only in like the last minute of that piece that it happens, you know. So. Ah, you just have to punch the airplane at the end. Then, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, so we'll be, we'll look forward to your your website being updated. Where can people follow what you do, like uh, the Henry Mancini project? So the Henry Mancini Institute actually has its own Instagram. So at HMI Frost School is how you can get there. Okay. And we should have a couple, like most of what we did this past semester was remote recording work, right. just to try to keep everything safe for everyone, and. It was really fun because we had some um, some teaching sessions where we, we taught folks kind of from zero to 60 how to get a recording, like how to, how to use a DAW, how to get the microphone set up, how to get your camera set up, and how to make sure that the audio and video is synced, you know, mm-hmm. all the fun stuff. 
Nice. And we we ended the semester with I think three full orchestra arrangements that should be coming out soon. Okay. And yeah. Yeah, I I still haven't really gotten into all that myself. I I've been very busy with like solo stuff, you know, just MIDI recording and all that. But my twenty twenty one goal, I think, is I want to collaborate more, whether it's in person or remotely. I just you want to get some more live musicians and and stuff because yeah. uh, I, I got to score four films this year, which was great, but it was all by myself, and uh, <laughs> it's. A little lonely that way. It's like because you get into some tense, you know, bursts, you know, recording. But but then you know you're just sitting in that same chair for a long time. <laughs> it's yeah. nice. It's nice to. That's that's what I miss the most about musical theater is just the collaboration, you know, with other musicians. So, all right. Uh, well, I know that you're you're in a busy time personally, and this was a window that we were able to get you on here. So thank you for uh, taking the time to. Just talk about what you've been up to. Absolutely. It was so great to talk to you, David. And that wraps up episode number 33. Uh, next week on Life in the Pit, we'll have episode number 34. Again, that'll come out on a Friday. And uh, looking forward uh, to talking to the first of three people who play either drums or percussion. Now, I realize that sounds like that's going to be repetitive, but I assure you that it's not. Uh, my conversations with G- with all three of these guests uh, were unique, and uh, one of them we hardly even talk about their instrument, but just their specific stories. So um, I think you'll get something out of each episode, and definitely encourage you to check that out, starting with episode 34 next week on Friday, January 29th. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music, or you can follow me on Twitter or Facebook at David M. Lane Music. As always, a special thanks to Mark Perolo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. The theme music is composed and performed by David Lane. You can leave feedback or find out more about this podcast at davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app, and please share with your friends. Thank you for listening.